We continue in the sermon series e-transfer. We're talking about what we have received from God and what we are to pass on to others. Why do we exist? Well, we exist to know Jesus personally and to carry on his ministry. How do we do that? Well, we do that under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Where do we do that? Well, Pastor Willie already said, in, in Vancouver, in Canada, and around the world. One of the marks of being filled with the Spirit is bold witness. What does that look like? Well, we'd like to begin with a testimony. Um, Zaire Min is here. He's Burmese, uh, lives in Thailand right now. He's doing ministry in um, Thailand and in Myanmar, and he's here together with Dave Sinclair-Peters. Dave and his wife Louise have been missionaries in Thailand and Myanmar for the last uh, 20 or so years, and if he can get that mic out, we'll hear a testimony. Come on up, uh, Dave and uh, Zaire Min. Welcome here. Hello. Mingalaba. I'm speaking Thai right now, so anybody here speak Thai? Okay, we got one. Uh, if I put on an outfit like this, it, it means either one of two things. I'm either preaching or I'm going to officiate at a wedding. So if, if you want to get married today, just come and see me later. <laughs> I just have a, a short testimony to tell you today about a little bit about my life. I I come from Myanmar and I'm uh, from a Buddhist family. From the time I was five years old, I... I went into the monastery and I, I went into the monastery about five or six times to study Buddhism. I studied all the Buddhist scriptures and my family was very devout. We followed all the, the Buddhist rituals. And what I learned from all that study was that uh, really it... What, what Buddhism taught me was that every religion is the same. They all teach you how to be good people. And so I tried to do all the, the rules. I tried to follow Buddhism to the best of my ability. Does anybody here know in Buddhism how many laws there are to follow? There's not very many. There's only about 84,000 laws to follow. I knew I couldn't follow all these rules. I was getting, getting really discouraged. And also during that time in my country, uh, uh, there were, we were under military rule and uh, the, the army was coming and capturing kids my age. I was 13 years old and I had to flee and leave my home and I, I, I ran, I went uh, for days overland and into Thailand. Thailand. 
When I was in Thailand, I was an illegal migrant worker, and so I got the worst of the worst jobs. I was in uh, uh, cleaning toilets, and I was in uh, restaurants washing dish- dishes. Those are the only jobs I could get. เป็นคริสเตียนเค้าเวลาขณะที่ล้างห้องน้ําเค้าเล่าเรื่องพระเจ้าทุกวันแต่ผมไม่อยากได้ยินเลยเนาะไม่อยากได้ยิน And every day when I was at work there was one of my friends was there and he was a Christian and he told me about Jesus every single day and I was not interested at all ก็เลยเฮ้ยโอ้ศาสนาเค้าตัวเองก็เนาะ I said, I've got, I've got a law, I've got a religion with 84,000 laws already. I don't need another religion on top of that. But So he told me though one day, he said, he said, okay, I've got one thing that you need to know. And that is, uh, when you have a problem, you can call out to my God. His name is Jesus. And, and when you call to him, you've got to know that whatever's impossible for a human being, it's possible for God. He can save you. He can help you. Uh, a few months later, I was, I was in, a, in a vehicle. We were speeding along. And I thought, this car is going to crash. We're all going to die. And I, I did not want to die that day. เขาเลยเนาะทุกคนก็รู้ว่าเนาะเมื่อเราไม่มีทันออนแล้วก็เราต้องพยายามที่จะมีทันออนใช่มั้ยครับ So I don't know if you've ever been in a crisis like that but when you're in a situation where you don't have any way of escape you're looking for a way to escape ก็เลยผมเริ่มที่จะอธิษฐานดูกับพระเจ้านะ So I start to pray and I call out to Jesus ก็เลยเนาะสุดท้ายพระเจ้าก็ช่วยผมจริงๆผมก็จะรอดมาจากตรงนั้นจริงๆ And and uh, right then Jesus came and he helped me and the, the car stopped and I was able to get out of, of this dangerous situation. I started to believe in Jesus and I, I uh, uh, and God started to change my life. Before that I had been addicted to drugs and alcohol and uh, God set me free from all of those addictions. And as I got to know who Jesus was and studied the Bible, I wanted to go out and tell my, my Burmese brothers and sisters about Jesus. And in, in Thailand, there's about 2 million uh, Burmese migrant workers who are in that country. So I had a huge opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And, and what I told them and, and what they already knew is that heaven and hell are real. And, and I would tell them there is only one way to, to uh, know the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. And the other thing, the reason why I would go out every day and tell people about Jesus was because I, I read in the Word of God, in Matthew 28, where it says, go and make disciples. And I thought, I need to do this. I want to obey this God who saved me. Amen. 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 Yeah.
So uh, Zaire Min didn't say this, but God has used him and his team to plant uh, 10 churches in Thailand among the Burmese and another 17 in Myanmar. This has happened over the last 10 years. So we want to pray for you and bless you. Thank you for being with us. Father, we um, thank you that you drew Zaire Min to yourself by your grace. And we thank you, Jesus, that he met you and that you are his Savior and Lord and that he's following you. Thank you that he walks in the fullness of your spirit. Thank you for Dave and Louise for uh, the way that you are using them in Thailand and Myanmar. And we pray for these churches that they would remain united, that uh, your church will be built in Thailand and Myanmar, that your kingdom will come for your glory, Jesus, at this time in history. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you. Zayur Min. Thank you, Dave. One of the ways that they're supporting uh, the ministry there, the church planning ministry, is by growing coffee in Myanmar and selling it. So this is high-grade coffee direct from Myanmar, lighthouse coffee. You can pick up a bag outside. Not now. Stay here for a few more minutes, (laughs) and uh, you can run out there in a second. And they also have some t-shirts, I believe, for, for sale. So, Zyermin, uh, drawn to Jesus um, by God, person witness to him, surrendered his life to Jesus, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, became a bold witness to Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, you'll remember that the disciples were there in an in upper room. Praying, waiting, worshiping, and they were filled with the Spirit, and after being filled with the Spirit, they became bold witnesses. They left that private space, went out into the public square, and they started to proclaim the good news of Jesus in the mother tongues of those that were listening. And those that were listening then said, well, okay, what does this mean? And in response to that question, Peter preaches a message, which we find in Acts chapter 2. James Emery White, a pastor from uh, North Carolina, he summarizes that message in this way. You know about the creation, Adam and Eve, and the fall. You know about Moses and the law. You know about Abraham and the chosen people of Israel. You know of the prophets and the promised coming of the Messiah. So we don't need to waste time on that. What you need to know is that Jesus was that Messiah. You rejected him, and now you're in deep weeds, and you need to repent. If you read through Acts 2, you realize that Peter, he assumes that those listening to the message, they know the scriptures. They know the scriptures, and in light of their knowledge, he presents Jesus. And on that day in Jerusalem, 3,000 people are added to the church. 3,000 people repent and are baptized. Amazing. Canada used to be somewhat like that. You know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, if you were to preach a message, most people would have some understanding of the biblical story. They would have some understanding of biblical values. We lived in Acts 2 reality in Canada, kind of like Jerusalem. But that's not true today. Canada has changed dramatically over the last 50, 60, 70 years. What we live is much more like an Acts 17 context. And that's the passage that we're going to look at today, Acts 17. So if you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, it's page 926. Paul, he was sent out from the church in Antioch. We looked at that last week, Acts chapter 13. That was around 46 AD. And then he landed in Athens around 50 AD in the second missionary journey. Athens um, 
It had been subjugated by the Romans. It was impoverished by the Romans. But it was still probably the intellectual center of the empire. The cultural center of the empire. So let's see what happens. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul enters the city of Athens. He's confronted by this forest of idols. Petronius, a Roman author, a contemporary of Paul, he said that it was easier to find a god or an idol in Athens than a human being. So the landscape is littered with the forest of idols. And what do they represent? Well, they represent the longings of the people, the aspirations of the people, what they're living for. Things like healing, prosperity, a success in business, uh, sex, justice. There were idols to all of these things. How does Paul respond? Well, verse 17. His spirit was provoked within him. That word provoked, that's a powerful emotion. It's what God feels when he observes idolatry in the scriptures. It's this complex emotion that's a mix of anger and grief and compassion. Compassion. Paul was greatly distressed to see the city, that the city was devoted to idols because he saw that they were being wooed in the wrong, wrong direction. The art was beautiful, yes, but it was serving idolatry. So we need to ask ourselves a question. Do we see the idols of our cities? Sometimes you see carved images in Vancouver, but quite often we don't make idols out of gold and silver and stone. To find our idols, we need to ask ourselves some questions like, what are we actually passionate about? What do we live for? What do we long for? And if we answer those questions, we'll find the idols of our day. Things like, pleasure and comfort and security, things like money and nature and sex, things like brands, followers, self. We have idols in our day. And when we see the idols of our day around us or within us, do we respond the way that God does? If we want to share Jesus boldly, we must feel what God feels when we see the idols. It's okay to be angered if you see false worship in others or in yourself. We should also be led to grief and to compassion. I think the opposite of anger in our day is most often apathy, indifference. What does Paul do? Well, he goes beyond his inner turmoil to love. So, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And so, there in the synagogue, the conversation was probably like Acts 2. People familiar with the scriptures. 
Then he goes on. Reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. What is the marketplace of Athens? It was called the Agora. We really don't have anything like it in our day. A marketplace like they had in Athens. The marketplace was where everything was happening. You had temples, government buildings, theaters, shops, galleries, law courts, gymnasiums, offices. Who was there? Everyone. (laughs) The town officials, the artists, the businessmen, the town heralds, that was the media of the day, the philosophers, everyone was there. It was the center of public life, the center of business life. People met there every day to hear the latest, to hear the new ideas, to buy, to shop. You could get everything there, art, ideas, news, food. It was faster than Amazon. Where do we find the marketplaces today? Where do we find them? Well, wherever people are having conversation, wherever people are interacting. And so in the cafes, the student cafeterias, the pubs, uh, on social media, the internet, wherever people are having conversations. And the questions that we should be asking ourselves are, are we finding ourselves in those places? Are we in the marketplaces of our day? Are we engaging in conversation? Are we in conversation with the ideas of those that are a part of our lives? Paul's in the marketplace every day reasoning with the people. That word reasoning, it means that you actually try, you listen really hard so that you understand how others think. You understand the premises behind their thinking and then you respond in a thoughtful way. So Paul, he actually believes that the gospel can stand in the marketplace. He believes in the substance and the power of the gospel. He believes that the gospel can hold its own in the marketplace. In Athens, most people don't know who Abraham was. They don't know who Jesus was. Paul says, shoppers, what you're buying here, it will never satisfy. What you drink here in the marketplace, it will never quench your thirst. Speaking of thirst, how many of you have been to the Richmond Night Market? Okay, there are some people here. Yeah, I've gone there for bubble tea. (laughs) This summer, a group uh, called Chinese Christian Short-Term Mission Training Center, that's a long name, but this group, they rented space there for 13 nights. And on August 30th, the night of August 30th, a group from Willingdon went to the night market. They represented our Russian, our Spanish, and our Chinese ministries. And what did they do? There they are in the tent. Um, They engaged people in conversation. So as people went by their space, they would say, hey, would you like to play a game? They would play a game around personality styles and temperaments. And people would have fun just discovering their personal style, their temperament. And then based on that conversation, they would say, hey, that's an interesting personality style. Do you know what my personality is like? Well, this is what it's like. And these are some of the things that I've struggled with. And this is how actually Jesus has helped me work through some things. Would you be interested in hearing the message of Jesus? And if the person was interested, well, then they would sit down around a table and in a few minutes just share in love, the message of Jesus. If the person said, no, I don't want to hear about the message of Jesus, they would just offer to pray for the person. This is what happened. Over a period of 13 nights, 1,302 people listened to a gospel presentation. 
684 of those 1,300, they were hearing the gospel for the first time, and they wanted to know more. And 234 surrendered their hearts to Jesus. If we want to share Jesus boldly, we have to be where the people are. We need to go to where the people are. Michael Green, in his uh, seminal work, Evangelism in the Early Church, he concludes that the early church, the first disciples, they shared the message of Jesus like gossip across the backyard fence. In other words, they were just sharing it naturally, daily, everywhere, because for them it was good news. They were excited about what they had to share. In, in Athens, the uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they re- represent the two biggest schools of philosophy in Paul's day. They engage Paul in conversation. The Epicureans, they were the agnostic secularists. They would say, ah, God might exist, the gods might exist, but we don't care. We're going to take care of life on our own. Their motto was, we live for pleasure, we live for sex, we live for life right now. For them, everything was relative. Everything was just a chance occurrence. They were kind of like the secular humanists of our day. Their philosophy was empty, as it is today. The Stoics, the Stoic philosophers, they were kind of like the New Age pantheists in our day. They would say things like, everything is infused with the divine. Oh, if humanity could just be one, they would probably find themselves singing John Lennon's song, Imagine. For them, fate governed all things. For example, this is their kind of counsel. Okay, you're afraid of suffering? Well, just be detached. You have a baby, and you're afraid that the baby will die? Well, just detach yourself from your child. Not the best counsel, but it was what they taught. You know, when we study Greek philosophy, we recognize that there's actually nothing new under the sun. Sometimes people will say things like this. Oh, I have a new idea. (laughs) We need a new morality. There is nothing new under the sun. Don't buy into that lie. (laughs) There's nothing new under the sun. And as you study the philosophies of the past, you realize how bankrupt we are, how limited we are in our understanding of life. When my second daughter went to university uh, to study philosophy, a number of uh, well-meaning Christians said this to her. If you go to the university and study philosophy, you're going to lose your faith. Not very encouraging counsel. Not very helpful. And so the question that I ask myself is this. Did those well-meaning Christians actually believe that their faith could not hold its own on the university campus. Three years, um, in her third year, uh, she's studying philosophy, and she'd studied Greek and British and French and Buddhist philosophers. She had this aha moment. She calls me from back east. She says, Dad, I've studied the premises of these philosophies. I've studied the outcomes of these philosophies, and they are bankrupt. They have nothing to offer me. You see, only the gospel of Jesus brings us a message that truly holds all things together and that speaks truly to our deepest aspirations, aspirations, our longings, answers our questions. 
How do the philosophers of Paul's day respond to his reasoning? Well, they say, well, what does this babbler have to say? That's an interesting word. That word babbler, the, the, the background of it is, is a chicken that's out in the yard and it's pecking at seeds and then spouts them out. So they'd use this word for a person that would walk around the marketplace, pick up ideas, and without understanding them would just spout them out. So that's what they're saying to Paul. What does this babbler want to say? Kind of like a person that wants to enter a debate and before the debate just goes to a few Wikipedia pages and then thinks they have enough understanding to debate someone. Others said, no, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. So for them, Jesus was foreign. Resurrection absurd. So they take Paul to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, the council there, it was the legislative and judicial council of Athens. And they governed matters of morality and religion in Athens. So they want to evaluate this traveling lecturer. Should Paul be permitted to continue to market his ideas in Athens? That's the question. So they ask Paul to come to the council of Areopagus and he is to share his teaching. What does Paul say to them? This is one of the most fascinating messages in all of Acts because I think it it, it is uh, the best example of someone actually engaging Gentiles in conversation. People that aren't from a Jewish background or don't have a strong footing in the Christian faith. So, uh, 17 verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul is looking for connecting points in their thinking, in their culture. I perceive you are very religious. That's not just looking and taking some photos. That's actually seeing what's behind the idols. As I passed along and examined your objects of worship, I noticed that there's this altar to an unknown God. So... What if I were able to tell you the name of that unknown God? Would you be interested? That's his question. So he uses that as a connecting point. And what does he say? Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So Paul, he begins with the creator, the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by hands. He's not served by human hands. Athenians, you're serving your idols with with food. No, no, God, he's the sustainer of all things. He's the ruler over all things. He's, He's the one behind all things. That was really good news for the people of Athens. Really good news that believed that the universe, for those that believed that the universe was impersonal, that it was just a random occurrence. Really good news for those that believed that life was governed by karma. Really good news for them. Good news for us. God created all people from one man, Adam. 
God is behind the, the history of each ethnic group. He governs the history of each ethnic group. And what did God have in mind? What was his intent? Well, verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That language, feel their way toward him and find him. Well, that's a, like a groping in the darkness. People are feeling groping, but they're not sure that they can find him. According to Paul in the following verses, it's, it's possible to find God. In fact, he's close to each one of us. God's present. He's personal. He knows the longings of our hearts. He hears the prayers of these philosophers in Athens. He hears their heart cries as he heard the cry of Zyre Min when he thought he was going to die and just cried out, Jesus! And that's good news for us. Because before we ever arrive on the scene, before we ever think of sharing our faith with anyone, God is already present. He's present everywhere, and he's close to each one. And he knows the cry of each one. We do come with our understanding of who Jesus is. We do come with our testimony of how God has been at work in our lives. But God is already at work before we even open our mouths. In his reasoning with the Greek philosophers, Paul quotes from their writers, in him we live and move and have our being. That comes right out of a, a work of Epimenides, a philosopher from Crete. From Crete. And then he says that we are God's offspring, and that comes from a poem written by a Stoic poet, Erastus. So Paul, he's familiar with their writings, and he uses them in a very respectful manner. He's finding connecting points. He engages these philosophers in conversation by going back to creation, by going back to what we have in common, by speaking to human longings, to the religious search, and he's familiar with their poetry. If we want to share Jesus boldly, we must connect with the longings of those we speak to. We must connect with their longings. All people have longings, God-given longings. Paul, he builds these bridges of understanding upon which he'll meet the Athenians and then share graciously, forthrightly, the gospel. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What's Paul saying in this message? Well, God is the creator of all things. He's the Lord of heaven of of heaven and earth. And as our creator, we're accountable to him. Being God's offspring, being made in his image, we're much more complex and wonderful than any lifeless idol. And we should not think that God, the Lord of heaven and earth, can be reduced to something of our creation, something we create with our art, with our imagination. In previous times, God overlooked this idolatry. He did not come uh, to us with immediate judgment, but God has now revealed his will and plan in Jesus. And God has fixed the day to judge the world in righteousness. It's definite. God has fixed the day. It's universal. God will judge the world. He is just. 
It's personal, by the man whom he has appointed, Jesus. Jesus lived among us, God among us. He revealed the Father. He went to the cross in Jerusalem. He died. Jesus is not just another philosophical idea. He's not another thing to believe in. He's not some human construct. No, he was God-made flesh. He lived among us. He went to the cross, and he rose again. And that resurrection is the guarantee that the judgment is coming. So it's urgent. Turn from your idolatry and turn to God. Paul doesn't compromise in the proclamation of the gospel. He's bold, he's faithful, and he's gracious. If we want to share Jesus boldly, we must share Jesus honestly and graciously. With that mention of the resurrection, the message appears to come to a screeching halt. How do the people respond? Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there's the response. Some mocked. This is crazy. The Greeks had no category for bodily resurrection. Absurd. That kind of mockery stops many of us. I can think of moments in my life where that has stopped me. Sometimes we want the acceptance of our peers more than anything else. People will mock us if we share our faith in Jesus. Not everyone will be pleased. We have to be okay with that. Are we going to go silent and compromise because we fear rejection? Others said, we'll hear you again. They weren't ready to believe, but they wanted more. They were actually interested. Uh, Earlier this year, two of our young adult life groups, they got together to host a a gospel conversation. And so one group, uh, they opened a home. They prepared a meal. There it is, a five-course meal. And uh, the members of these groups, they invited friends. Some were Sikhs, uh, Hindus, atheists. They were upfront about what their intent was, to have a gospel conversation. So the members of our church, they shared the gospel. They read the scriptures. And then those that had come also shared their perspectives, their backgrounds, what they believed. Somehow Pastor Trevor inserted himself in there. I was not invited. I'm offended. What did they say? It was a very powerful night, and Jesus was clearly at work. Group members continue to journey with these people today. So there's an example of reasoning with people in our day. Some were interested in Athens, and some actually believed. Dionysius, a member of the council of the Areopagus, a man of high social standing, he believed. Damaris, a woman. Others If we want to share Jesus boldly, we must be prepared for rejection, yes, but also interest and acceptance. All three will happen. The Dionysius and Damaris of our day will not come to faith if we don't feel what God feels. If we're not out there where the people are. If we're not connecting with their longings, feeling what they feel, and sharing the message of Jesus 
with confidence and humility and boldness. How many of you watched the movie Gravity? Not too many moviegoers here. Anyways, Gravity. In the movie Gravity, an astronaut um, played by George Clooney and a medical engineer played by Sandra Bullock, their shuttle uh, suffers a catastrophe. And so they are drifting through space and it appears that they are going to die. They're adrift in orbit. And in one scene, Ryan Stone, played by uh, Sandra Bullock, she's uh, got tears and she's thinking about what's before her. And into the empty space, this is what she says. I'll quote her. I'm going to die. I know. We're all going to die. Everybody knows that. But I'm going to die today. It's funny that, you know, to know. But the thing is, is that I'm still scared. I'm really scared. No one will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. Will you mourn for me? Will you pray for my soul? Or is it too late? I mean, I'd say one for myself, but I've never prayed in my life. So, but nobody ever taught me how. Nobody ever taught me how. No one ever taught her how. No one ever explained it. But someone could have. Have you and I forgotten what it's like to be apart from Jesus? Have we forgotten what it's like to not know how to pray? Allow me to illustrate. I think we suffer from the curse of knowledge. Stanford University conducted an experiment. And so they asked some of those involved in the experiment to tap out songs that were really familiar to them and to those that would be listening to the songs. So they would tap out these songs, and then those listening were to try to identify the songs. So here's the experiment. I know the song. Wait. Did you get it? No. How many think they know? Oh, there's someone. What do you think it is? <laughs> that would be a good song. So when they conducted this, I'll tell you in a minute. When they conducted this experiment, those tapping the songs, they thought that 90% were able to identify the songs. In reality, only 2.5% were able to identify the songs. 2.5%. So what does that illustrate? Those that were tapping the songs, they could hear the song in their heads. They knew the song. And they couldn't imagine those listening not being able to identify the song. You see, once we know something, it's really hard to imagine what it's like to not know it. So I tapped out for you, happy birthday. <laughs> I could hear it in my head. You all know the song. What's wrong with you? <laughs> That's the curse of knowledge. 
Do we remember what it's like to not know Jesus? Sometimes we need to go back to those days. Do we remember what it's like to not know how to pray? When we look at the idols around us in our city, are we angered or are we indifferent? Do we grieve? (laughs) Do we weep the way Jesus did over Jerusalem? Do we respond with compassion the way that Paul did? Paul saw the idols and he went to the marketplace. He engaged people in conversation. He went out to where people were. He connected with their longings. He understood their longings. And he had this conviction that the only one that could answer their questions, the only one that could truly speak to their aspirations, the only one that could answer their heart longings was Jesus. (laughs) So he went day after day. I pray that by God's grace we will feel what God feels. That we will go out to where the people are. That we will go to those marketplaces of our day. That we will engage people in conversation. That we will understand their longings. And that we will boldly and confidently with humility and respect share the good news of Jesus. May we not believe the lie, the lie of our day, that it's wrong to talk about Jesus, that it's offensive to talk about Jesus. May we not believe that lie. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way that we might be saved. You, I, anyone else on earth. Zaire Min is faithfully proclaiming the gospel in Thailand, in Myanmar. He suffers a lot of opposition, much more than we'll ever face in Canada, at least in this day. May he inspire us to be faithful. May the example of Paul inspire us. May we be those people, those chosen servants of the Lord in our day, that understand which day we live in and are willing to put it all on the line so that people might come to know Jesus, their Savior, today. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. You know, if you're... um, If you're not a follower of Jesus right now, know that Jesus invites you to know him. Paul said in his message that Jesus was present, that he was personal, and he is. And so Jesus knows your name, he knows your journey, and he is present to speak to your aspirations, to answer your questions. He wants you to know him. He knows your longings for love and for acceptance, for meaning, to be free of guilt, to have shame removed, to have your fears dispelled. Jesus is present, and he invites you to know him. If you want to pray to Jesus, follow me in this prayer. It'll be on the screen behind me. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. 
Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness and new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, please go tell someone in the prayer center, welcome center, or the person you came with. We'd love to encourage you. Now our prayer, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. Oh God, may we be found faithful in our day. You know our journey. You know where we are in this journey. I thank you that you're writing a story in the life of each brother and sister. May we understand, O oh God, what you're doing in and through us. May you open our eyes to the cities that we live in. May we, Lord, have your heart. Share your heart with us, Lord, we ask. And may we respond, O oh God, to the needs around us with compassion, sharing Jesus, who you are. We thank you that you're present to work in our day for the growth of your kingdom, for your glory. Thank you that we can be a part of what you're doing, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great weekend.